For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also keep insult on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the morning, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we have here is a passage in the Bible that is central to the Christian faith, necessary to understanding what it means to be a Christian and how to walk out this life, but I think deeply and powerfully reveals the humanity of Jesus. One thing we believe is that Jesus was both man and God. And what I want to talk about is the humanity of this moment. Because it's what the wisdom literature refers to. It's the picture it paints. Here's a man named Jesus, scorned by his enemies, mocked by those who were being crucified right next to him, his followers scattered, and, and right before his death, from the, like, the deepest part of his being, he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a very serious passage. And I don't think the only emotion, the only feeling running through Jesus' body is one of suffering and pain. I think it's deep and profound love and joy. When he cried out, when he yelled out, it was from love. Perhaps a culmination of his human experiences were flashing before his eyes. Perhaps when he looked down on the people, he was remembering conversations he had. We're talking about the man called Jesus, whose flesh was pierced, who was mocked, his feelings were hurt, and whose father rejected him for our benefit because he loved us. When we read scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, um, it's always projecting towards Jesus, but there is a heart that the text is trying to convey. And that's what I want to convey to you today, and then I want you to pick up on through this sermon series, is that uh, the wisdom literature addresses the human experience. And it gives us a picture of God's heart and how human he had to become through Jesus to understand what it means to be us and love us and serve us and die for us. And so, uh, throughout these books, we get a picture or a tapestry or a window. The wisdom literature in the Bible is kind of like a mirror and a window. Uh, if you've ever looked out of a window on a sunny day, you can kind of see your reflection, and then beyond it, you can see the view, whatever it might be. This is wisdom literature. When you read it, you begin to see your own reflection. And you have to take a look at what's going on inside of you and ask some serious, sincere questions. And then you get a bigger, better picture painted for you. And it gives somewhere your heart to go, and it gives someone for your heart to awake you. Um, before we get into the literature itself, uh, I want to read a poem for you. 
and the poem is uh, very related to what we're talking about. There's a quote, uh, it says, truth is like poetry and people hate poetry. <laughs> so, I have to like poetry, so you don't have to indulge me, but I think um, it's helpful for you. And what I want you to do is not concentrate on every word I'm reading, because it's in older English, and it might be a little confusing, but I want you to uh, get an impression of what the poem's trying to say. The picture, it puts in your mind, the feelings, it maybe pulls up in your heart, but just have a listen and not worry trying to figure out what it's saying. I'll do that for you again. So, this is Think of God by Paul Hamilton Haynes. Beyond the record of all eldest states, beyond the rule in regions of past time, from out antiquity's foray headed by, looms the dread phantom of the king of kings. Round his vast brows the glittering circlet clings of a thrice royal crown behind him inclined. Over mantling limbs and breasts of wine, the somber splendors of mysterious wings, deep calms of measureless power and awful state, gird and uphold him a miraculous rod, to heal or smite arms his infallible hands. Known in all ages, worshipped in all lands, Doubt names this half-embodied mystery faith, while faith with lowest reverence whispers God. Doubt names this half-embodied mystery faith, while faith with the lowest reverence whispers God. Life is not a series of random events. Life is not merely the past opinion. Life is not merely your feelings and your experiences, but they make up what we call the human condition. And what the wisdom literature is trying to do is it's trying to speak to your human condition. And admit that there are highs and there are lows. That there are principles to follow. That there is uh, songs that need to be sang, tears that need to be cried, poetry that needs to be read, much of the wisdom literature is poetry, to express the things we experience in our life and how we ought to respond to them. So generally speaking, everyone experiences birth, death, you get hired from a job, you get fired from a job, you have lots of money, you have a little bit of money, your friends love you, your friends scorn you, you get married, you have a divorce, you raise children, they reject you, you try to build a company, it succeeds, it doesn't, you go on and on and on. There's these choices that we make in light of how life presents itself. And we live in a culture that says it's random. It's a roll of the dice. It's fake. If you were happy to be born in North America, good for you. Uh, if you happen to be white, a little more helpful. And then you have some choices to make, and good luck with that. But if you were born here, and you were born with the right skin color, and we'll start with an NGO to try to help you, but this kind of sucks. That's fake. That's a naturalistic worldview. That's what our culture that is not the biblical worldview. That is not what the wisdom literature is teaching you and I. Wisdom literature is saying to you and I, 
Events are not random. Your choices matter. There is a person behind the thing that wants to match your heart. When you're at your highest, he's rejoicing with you. When you're at your lowest, he's crying with you. You are not alone, and there is a beating heart. Even before Jesus came to earth, there is a beating heart inside of his being called God because he loved his people. And he wanted to give us a picture of that heart to relate to us and to show us how to re- live righteously, react righteously to life. So I love the wisdom literature. It's my favorite book in the Bible. That's why I picked this sermon series in the summer, is I love it and I want you to love it too. So that's my selfish reason. But that's the, that's the heart behind what we're talking about. And that person on the cross was God. He was a man who felt what we felt and suffered for our sake and experienced great joy. I often wish the Bible um, gave more human examples of Jesus in a humorous way. Like, I'm sure that on the road between different towns, the disciples were cracking jokes. And they were laughing about the city they got kicked out of, and the guy who got a demon kicked out of them that they didn't think would work. Like, Jesus was a person, and the disciples were human, like you and me, and they had human moments. And so I think the cross is the most powerful central picture, but I wish I had some more to offer you about the time Jesus laughed, and the disciples laughed with him. That's the human condition. If you have kids, you know you can sit down at the dinner table one night, and it's just terrible, noisy, no one's happy, and the next evening, everyone's loving each other, they're being super cute. Like one day to the next, the experience you have with your family drastically changes. So wisdom literature is asking you to stop and reflect on your heart in this moment. Not just the hard ones, but the good ones. Say, what's going on in this moment? There's the same happening to you. How should I respond? More importantly, who am I responding to? And it's not a random series of events. It's God who knows you and loves you and has a beating heart for you and wants to give you that heart, and wants to match your heart in that moment, and wants to know you and be known by you. This is what wisdom literature is hinting at together. <clears throat> so, I want to quickly just talk about the different kind of books, how they're set up. And then I want to um, share something very personal with you, and end with an invitation. Uh, each week, a uh, speaker is going to focus on one book. And so I'd like to give you a helpful outline so that uh, you can kind of have a framework. Uh, Proverbs is this book in the Bible that has multiple authors. And what it does is it gives you these um, short bits of wisdom. Uh, much of Proverbs is Hebrew poetry, so that's why it looks all broken up the way it does. And they are guidelines to live by that if you follow them, generally your life will go well. Most likely, if you act this righteous way, if you speak this way, then life will go well for you and you will live long and you will prosper.
That's progress. Yes, thank you. Now I'll leave you. I appreciate that. Start. You will live on your costume. That's Proverbs. And Proverbs is um, two people talking to each other. And it's uh, it's not only the principles one ought to live by, but it's the, it's the desire to seek after wisdom, to seek after understanding. They often reference um, a woman of... Uh, Adultery, that would be the ways of the world that are highly seducing, but in the end, you death. And then it talks about lady wisdom, the one that calls to you, and that is like living water that you search after and you seek for. And so there's a call in Proverbs, beyond the, the principles to live by, there's a heart message that says, yearn for understanding, ask for wisdom. It's not just a rule to know, it's a person to follow. It's a person to know. And so the way it was written, and the characters it uses, uh, tells you that these principles are relational. They're not just guidelines. They're how to relate to God and the world. So that's Proverbs in a nutshell. Job is a direct answer to Proverbs. Job goes, ha! You can be the most righteous man on earth, and God will just let you suffer. God thought highly of Job, and Satan wanted to test Job. And God let Satan test Job uh, in every manner except for taking his life. And his friends turned on him, his wife turned on him. There's a lot of back and forth between God and Job and his friends where they're working out this pain that he's experiencing. He's regretting the day he was born. He's asking, why did I sin? Do I do something wrong? But in all of that, Job never curses God's name. And in fact, his wife encourages him to. His wife says, look, just curse God, your life will be over in this history. And Job says, no. There's something more valuable than even my life, than even my experiences. There's someone to know, to relate to, in the midst of the suffering. And in fact, he's the one who allowed me to suffer. And I want to be close to I don't know how to write a hand about that, but I know what that does in my heart. It melts it. Makes me love him. So Job looks at Proverbs. The author of Job looks at Proverbs and says, Yeah, generally things go well for you, but God's going to let you suffer. The question is, who are you suffering for? And what is your life worth? See, we're asking fundamental questions about our experiences. We've all had relationships broken. We've all suffered in ways that we didn't deserve. Sometimes in ways that we did. Sometimes we did the right thing and it worked out for us. And we rejoice. Rejoice when things go well. And when things aren't fair and you suffer, more to cry out. This is what wisdom literature is teaching us about our own hearts and about God's heart and how it works to relate to us. So that's Proverbs and that's Job's. And then we have Ecclesiastes. I love Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes is like this thought experiment that takes Job on a philosophical level. And so it's a father talking to a son on the beginning and the end, and in the middle it's a teacher talking to a student. And so 
Basically what it's saying is, look, if you suffer immeasurably, if God blesses you for no, like all these things that happen to you, what's the point of life? And so the author, the teacher, says, it's all meaningless. You can get a great job, you can be fired. You can win the lottery, you can lose it all. Uh, you can find love, you can lose it. You could try to start a business and it fail. And if you're living for today, if your response to life and the experiences you have is based on the success or the wealth or the joy that you experience, it's all meaningless. It's like trying to chase vapor or the wind. How could you possibly catch smoke? And it's a very, um, if you're a little cynical like me, you'll enjoy the book. Because it goes low for a while. And it makes you wonder, wow, there really is no point in anything. But he's, he's, he's a philosopher working out the thought experiment of what are we doing here anyways? And of course, it finishes with really, as any good teacher does, making the right point the point. And I'm not going to spoil it uh, for whoever's preaching on that subject. But it's a father and a son uh, wanting to impart wisdom. It's a teacher trying to instruct the students and say, come along. And let's, let's doubt, let's examine, let's question so that we might have a sincere faith and know what's actually true. And that is not merely an intellectual exercise. Because in the book, the way the book was written, we're, we're listening to people talking to each other. And in the end, there's a God to find a lot of Like, that's, that's what the authors knew when they were writing these things. Is that they weren't random. It wasn't faith. It was God. Someone to be found, feeding heart to match yours. And then we learned how to have a righteous reaction. So we have Proverbs, we have Job, we have Ecclesiastes, and we have Psalms. Psalms is like that handbook for God's people. Um, written after they came out of exile, it's to teach the people of God how to pray and worship as they struggle to obey. Which is entirely relatable as you and I go to work, have families without our lives, as we struggle to obey, Emotions and thoughts and actions come as a response to these things. And Psalm says, get on your knees and cry. Because there's a God crying with you. And Psalm says, get on a mountaintop and sing and smile and laugh and have joy. My suspicion is, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, is that in our culture, what we're trying to do is always find this equal degree. Uh, something bad happened, I want something good to happen. And so instead of joining God in the highs and the lows, we're just trying to find a balance in the middle. Because what do we want? We want stability. We want to know that we're looking, we're, we're taken care of, we're being looked after. And so in our emotions, our words, our behaviors, we're always trying to find the middle. I don't think God's heart lives in the middle. And I don't think you were designed to live in the middle. When you're high and you're successful, God's there with you. And when you're low and you're struggling, God's there with you. And Psalms tells God's people, worship, party, have a good time. 
Proverbs says that too. When you're young and in love, enjoy each other. Not that there's any new ways to do that. But, uh, you know, in life's moments, you express yourself. And I think what we do is we're afraid the good times won't last. So we bring them down. And we're afraid that when the bad times come, come they'll be too low. And we're always trying to squeeze life and ourselves and God's heart into some sort of middle level of stability. And that is not what wisdom literature teaches us. That's not what Jesus on the cross teaches us. He died out of love. He died out of love. He lived out of love. There is a person when it's God we serve. And the authors knew that. And they said, here's how he relates to him. Here's how he relates to you. Here's a righteous response to life. Here, here's a heart that matches yours. Cry with him. Laugh with him. Praise him. Celebrate with him. That's Psalms. How do you do that? Because you struggle to obey. And then we have Song of Songs. Song of Songs is um, poetry and a love story between um, two people who are about to be married. And it's a discussion on love. And so it's looking at how powerful the emotion of love is and how powerful physical attraction is. And it's, it's a metaphor for the relationship, the love relationship between God and his people, God and his church. But the story is about a man and woman talking back to each other and saying, I want you so bad. <laughs> Our English versions uh, really tidy up this book of the Bible. It's not PG-13. I listened to someone give a lecture who read it in the Hebrew and, uh, <laughs> and so we have the polite version. So uh, there should be a disclaimer on the front of that book. But the idea is, is that that is a normal human experience. You see someone, you're physically attracted to them, you're going to get married, you're trying to wait, you're feeling insecure, but you are attracted, you love them, that love gets expressed, you feel uncertain. It's romance. We were created with these feelings and, and to express love and trust and intimacy in this way. But love, in the wrong context, is as strong as death. See, we have a culture that says love is an appetite. Feel it. As long as two people are consenting, you feel it. And Song of Song is saying, no. When God says he's love, it doesn't mean he's just filling an appetite. He's giving over him his whole self to you. When you give yourself over to someone physically, you better be willing to give over the rest of yourself. Otherwise, it's hurtful and it feels like that. Love is one of the most powerful and romantic love and physical love, which is not to be trivialized. It's meaningful, it's powerful, it's God-given, but it's also a symbol of God's heart for us. In fact, what Song of Songs teaches us is the way that a married couple relates to each other in the bedroom is how God wants to relate to you. Think about that. That's the kind of relationship the Father's heart longs to match with yours, is passionate, affectionate, 
chasing after one another in love. I can't wait to have you. And that's not just a feeling. That's a, that's a righteous response to life as we relate to him and he relates to us. Okay, so those are the five books in wisdom literature. And if all you did was read one book, you would get a very narrow um, perspective on the human condition. The point is, is you read them together. And when you read them together, it says something about the human condition. It teaches you how to respond to life in all manners. And read together turns into a mirror that looks at your own heart. You can't help but reflect on your own heart and your own uh, human experience, your own human condition. And then you can't help but see the beating heart of God who expressed it fully through Jesus on the cross. I want to, I want to say it again because I think it's just really important that something gets in here. When you are treated unfairly and you feel angry and you wonder why, you feel angry, you wonder why, and you react. God is there to absorb you. Not to just teach you a principle. He is there to give you his heart. Uh, when my parents first got divorced, it was quite painful. And I found a God whose heart matched my intensity. And I was no longer alone. I didn't find a God at first who told me the right and wrong thing to do. I didn't find a God at first who stood at a distance and said, well, pick yourself up and let's have a go. I found a God who in a quiet moment of prayer said, Paul, I love you so much, I could kill you for my love. Now which love would you prefer? Your own or mine? I said, I'd have to die for your love a thousand times. Then live one lifetime in just one. That's God's heart. And when you're happy, God's matching you with joy. He's near. His heart beats for you. He loves you. And when you struggle to obey, he says, come. Come have my heart. I'll give it to you freely. I demonstrated that on the cross. I want you to have it. I want you to see that this is not random, and that I'm a person, and I am behind the experience and the condition, and you can find me, and you will be more alive in the midst of joy and suffering than you can ever imagine. You will react righteously to life because you have God's heart and He has yours. We, uh, as some of you know, it's been a really busy time for my family. We, uh, well, I'll just give you this chronology. Um, February, the homeowners want to turn our garage into a lane. Then they try to avoid the law. Then the day that we go to deliver our twins, we get an eviction notice. Then uh, my friend and I fight them in arbitration. 
the entire model guys. We have to find two funerals. We keep looking for homes. I'm settling a bike accident with my lawyer, trying to work out negotiations. Not sleeping at night. A uh, lot of human experience in like four months. Uh, lots of joy. You know, watching your kids, I got to, I get to deliver almost all of my kids. Uh, wow, the privilege and the joy of watching your kids deliver. I mean, that's a fun thing. I feel close to God in that moment. Um, we get an eviction notice on the day we're going to have twins, we just laugh. Then I look at each other, and we go, yeah, we're not. <laughs> we just laugh. We get in the car, we leave the hospital, we got the kids wrapped up, you know, it's kid number three and four, delivery number three, so, you know, it's not a first really off, and we like high five, because we're out of the hospital sooner than they wanted us to be, because we were on the wall. And uh, we were called ideal patients, you know, so we're really like that. And uh, we have time. Like, all these things just go on simultaneously, right? Plan a funeral, go to arbitration, and here's the point I'm telling you all of this. is leading up to arbitration, which is um, me saying that I don't think the homeowners are picking us in good faith. So we go to see an arbiter, and prior to that, the homeowner sends a contractor on the property without giving me any notice when it comes to kids. Um, I'm working on a permit that's currently under dispute. That's insulting. That's just insulting. Um, I, I had, up until that point, I had really felt like the Lord was with me. I felt like I was being respectful and humble towards the homeowner. I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. I was being over-communicated to the property management company. Like, early on, I felt like the Holy Spirit really directed my heart. And I had Proverbs and Ecclesiastes just running through my mind. Because I wanted to find God's heart in this. I wanted to respond to the person of God, not my homeowner. And I wanted to respond to them in faith, in the ways I wish to respond to them. But they continued to show us, to treat us the way we didn't deserve. And it culminated with this moment. And I got mad. Embarrassingly mad. I believe the house uh, said some bad words. I had to apologize to people after. I walked around the block. I called my homeowner and the property management company on that means. Uh, I'll show the uh, It was, I threw a temper tantrum, essentially. <laughs> you don't know what I felt great. Uh, but when you talk about it now, you're kind of like, huh, oh, I feel like my three year old. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe that's why she acted out. <laughs> so um, I apologize to people in the home. And but I just I like I have a reasonable reason to feel angry. What they did was insulting and rude. And um, I I'm someone that uh, really cares about justice, but selfishly gets me. And so I just, I felt like I'd lost this heart. I felt like I'd lost my heart and God's heart through the course of all of this. 
and I just wanted to emphasize that. So I had a normal experience to get evicted. I had feelings and thoughts. Uh, a wide variety went through me, and then I reacted. And I realized that part of my reaction, my vengeance, is that somewhere in this process, instead of prizing God's heart again, I was prizing about God. That we would win. And someone said to me, Aunt Henry, well, what if you lose? What are you going to do? Uh, well, we can't lose. We've got an airtight case. They're jerks. And we had proof that they were skirting the law and being dilatory. So I was like, of course we're going to win. But that wasn't the point. I was hanging my heart, my emotions, my thoughts, my reactions on the successful outcome. And so the book of Job comes flooding through my head. He goes, ha! You did all the right things. You were really kind. And they didn't treat you the way you deserved. What do you do now? So struggle. Then I talked with one of our elders, Glenn. And he said, you need to show them mercy. And so we get to arbitration. And it's clear that the proceedings are going in our favor. And if he if he thinks the eviction was given in bad faith, they lose a lot of money. And we pay a lot of money. And Glenn and I pray a few days before, and I get to arbitration with my friend who's been helping me this whole time. And I realized there's going to be a moment where I need to show them mercy. And I forgive them. Because the point isn't the outcome. It isn't what happened to me. It's whose heart I find in the middle. And so uh, the arbiter hints at the homeowner, hey, this might not go your way. You might want to strike a deal with your record. So he leaves the phone call. We have a talk. I settle on a deal. And twice they try to talk me down the deal. They don't get it. They're ungrateful, unkind. And I just say, yes, yes. My heart needed to quench the fire of revenge. It doesn't want to. And what I wanted was God's heart to be beating in mind. And so we got a settlement that works great for my family. And I'm not to move into a wonderful new home. And I got to treat some people, my enemy, the way they don't deserve. And I got to share this testimony with my friend, who asked me, why are you being so fair? Why are you being so accommodating? And so I just talked about my heart, and I talked about God's heart. And I said, this is more important to me than the outcome. Mercy, forgiveness. I need to treat them the way they don't deserve. That's what it means to be So, I became a certain kind of person in front of my friend. And I found the person of God. And my heart was right before the Lord. I'm grateful. He's with us. It's tired and working hard and it's overwhelming, but I'm not alone. I feel like I have my heart back. That's the human condition. And you all have stories like that of success and failure. And in the middle of that, we think to ourselves, well, i got to get what's mine. Or i got to play fire with fire. Or what's the right thing to do? If I do the right thing, surely I'll be saved. Or, or uh, i got to find the middle. This is just too, too crazy, so I'm going to find this right balance. And then I'll feel secure. No, that's not the point. 
The point is not the outcome. The point is the person behind the outcome. That's wisdom literature. It's not this hard work, it's this hard work. Life is not random. Things happen to you. And behind those things is a beating heart from our Heavenly Father who says, I bleed with you, literally. I cry with you, literally. I suffer with you, literally. I rejoice with you, literally, in the Son of Jesus. And wisdom literature is hinting at that. If you want a righteous response to life, then I invite you to do the hard work of the next five years, the good work, the fun work. Because it is fun. And the hard work of examining your own heart, the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences you have, and asking yourself, who's behind it all? What do I really believe about this thing called life? How am I going to respond in this moment? And will I find a person, not the principle, will I find a person of God? And let him impart his heart to yours. Which is really after Jesus died and rose again, the disciples were scattered. They were uncertain. They didn't know what to do. And I have this hunch. It could be wrong. So don't worry. But when Jesus reappeared to the disciples, they didn't recognize him at first. Thought he was a gardener or something. And it wasn't until after he left that they realized, wow, like our hearts were burning inside of us. Wow, we saw the Messiah. I think, I wonder if they missed the person after the resurrection because they were looking for the principle. They were looking for what's next, what's the right thing to do. They were looking for how to respond, which is fair and normal. It's the right question to ask. I'd be asking it. But the first response in those moments isn't what's the next thing to do, it's who am I doing this for? I'm finding the God behind all of this and his heart and my own. Not the right thing to do, that's important. Not the principles, not the truth, but the person of God. Hinted at in the wisdom literature for the next five weeks. Shown clearly and precisely in the person of Jesus Christ that the God man who died on the cross for you. I invite you today. Reflect on your own heart. Find God's heart in the wisdom of the truth and the righteous response to it.